Science. Science. Technology. Technology. Medicine. Medicine. Health. Health. These four things make the world go round. Without them, we couldn't exist. This is the Monday Science Podcast. A weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine, and health. Answering your questions or finding experts in the field to answer them. Your host is a pharmacist, an award-winning scientist. She leads her own research group and is the founder of King's College London Fight the Fakes. A tad bit on the qualified side. Welcome to Monday Science. Here's your host, Dr. Bahija Rimey Abraham. Hello, welcome back to Monday Science. How are we all today? How am I today? Um I'm okay. I'm tired, a little bit tired, but I'm going to talk about that actually in the next two episodes. Sorry, not from today. Next two episodes from next week. Um, Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I've been silencing myself. And then the next one is when I considered leaving academia. Hmm, Should be fun. But anyway, it's not about me. (laughs) Uh, Today, it is about you. Thank you once again for coming back, coming back to listen to um well to listen to me to listen to what we talk uh, talk about with the guests very grateful for every single listener um not to waffle on a bit but I feel I do waffle on a little bit at the start but it's just because I feel so incredibly grateful every time I get like a notification to say somebody's listened to the podcast or um has commented on our social media I'm just extremely grateful and so yeah thank you um we've got some updates so our website mondayssciencepodcast.com has been updated it is looking quite good actually if I do say so myself I'm actually just gonna log in (laughs) just go and look whilst I'm, I'm talking um so it's been updated what's been updated um the two main things is you can see the team better, but it also you can get the access to the episode notes. So after each episode, um, one of our volunteers, Dagny, she takes time to write the episode notes. And um, usually you'd click on a button via the listen page, but actually it's a lot clearer now. There's a whole section episode notes, um, which is really good. And those get updated and you can access that there. Um, and the other section, two sections that have been Um, updated is the shop so we have a shop you can now purchase monday science merchandise www.mondaysciencepodcast.com follow forward slash oh and the excitement i couldn't say that properly forward slash shop um we have quite a few things in the shop so far we have magnets uh stickers also available glossy matte and transparent mugs um classic mug tall mug a water bottle and a clock. The clock is my personal favourite. Actually, I like all of them, but um, I would say the clock is quite cool. Uh, so please take a look at our shop. If there's anything of interest, feel free to purchase. And also, um, should you get anything, please tag and, and share on social media. You can tag us at Monday Science underscore. That's on Twitter or at Monday Science on Instagram. 
and also LinkedIn as well. Okay, on to today's episode. Um, Okay, let's start off with the news. Now, I don't know if anybody has been watching, or it's finished now actually, watched the Olympics, but I did. Um, The Olympics this year, that were meant to be last year, but because of COVID, everything because of COVID, um, it was in Japan. And apparently the Olympic Stadium was built for 60,000 fans. And I remember watching um, the Olympics thinking, oh, are there people in the stadium or not? Um, apparently the stadium was, the design was made so that the 60,000 seats were coloured in five different earth tones to represent a forest pattern mosaic that made the stadium look occupied and alive, even without spectators. And I think that was, I will need to verify this, but I believe this was done even before, um, the pandemic. Um, So today's news, I know that intro might have seemed a little bit random, (laughs) should have probably explained that better. But the reason why I'm talking about that is because uh, there's a study, a study has been conducted to look at the effect of empty stadiums during the pandemic. Now, I, aside from watching the Olympics, I did watch the Olympics, but I also got and watched gosh I'm gonna sound really silly but I think it was the World Cup I hope it was the World Cup because there were very various different countries or was it the Euro Cup no I think it was the World Cup somebody clarify please let me know if I'm getting this confused but anyway um oh yeah I think it was the World Cup wow having a moment okay there's a study that's been conducted and this was a study by the University of Leeds and Northumbria University and they used the unique opportunity that COVID um, has presented Uh, the COVID pandemic has presented to test whether there was any home advantage applied when fans are um, are present in the stands or not. And they focused on football. Um, There's apparently a website called footballdata.co.uk. Never heard of it. Uh, Might be of interest to somebody, but footballdata.co.uk. And then there's another online database called 538 Online Database. Again, never heard of these things until I was I came across this news. And what they did is that they assessed uh, 4,844 games across 11 countries. And they looked at various different leagues and, and so forth. And they found that home teams got fewer points and scored fewer goals when crowds were absent. The lack of crowds also affected how referees judged uh, fouls against the home and away sides interesting work I I I don't really watch football um I don't I used to support Arsenal but look at where that got me just emotional stress and I'm sorry to all the Arsenal fans fans out there but I don't know how you guys do it I gave up a long time ago um so maybe I'm not a true fan but I was anyway I'm not making this about Arsenal but they they hurt me yeah and I also used to I still used uh, still like uh rugby and when I used to go and watch rugby and uh, football, mainly rugby. Football I found a little bit um, intimidating because of the fans. But when I would go and watch rugby and football, and one one time I went to see Arsenal. You know, you can see how the crowd, um, you know, cheers on their teams, and and it you can see how it, it would influence. But it's interesting to observe that. Um, okay, on to the STEM person of the week. I should get a drum roll. Nope. That again. I really been a bit too free at the moment with my uh, sound effects. Um, okay, Monday Science Person of the Week. This goes to psychologist Dr. Alison Gopnik, and um, she's a world-renowned expert in child development and an author of several popular books, including The Scientist in the Crib, The Psychological Baby, and The Gardener and the Carpenter. And she's won the 2021 
2021 uh, Carl Sagan Prize for Science Popularization. And the prize is awarded by Wonderfest, which is a San Francisco Bay Area nonprofit dedicated to promoting scientific curiosity and discovery. I, I really uh, I just like this award and I think it's really good for people to get recognized for the work that they're doing in promoting science and, and also as the aim of the award, promoting scientific curiosity and discovery. Dr. Alison Gupnik said about winning the award, this is a moment when it's more important than ever before for scientists to communicate to the public and the Wonderfest is a great institution that plays a major role in the public understanding of science. I'm delighted and honoured to receive this prize. Congratulations, Dr. Gupnik. On to today's episode, which is part two of answering the question, what is the role of the social sciences in the response to COVID-19? And this is uh, with Professor Olivier Rubin, who is a professor of global studies, who is absolutely hilarious. I know I always say... um, Oh my gosh, I think this person's like my favourite guest, but I, I think he is. I think, well, everybody's my favourite guest, but I really enjoyed speaking with him. And I hope you enjoyed too. Um, so here is part two. Um, it is. So something that I learned from reading your bio on this said uh profile that we keep talking about um was something called after action reviews what what are they and how are they linked to the work you're doing with COVID-19 well so after action reviews that's that's not academic at all that's uh, sort of the WHO or the ECDC they usually they have uh, after action reviews um uh, after sort of an intervention or after sort of a an outbreak of of of, of a infectious disease or, or stuff like that and actually, so I was uh, hired by by the ECDC to to go into to um, to Italy to to Brescia and Presso. There there were some sort of uh, uh, cities in 2000 and, uh, 2020, right? Yeah, in 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 February 2020, I were to to travel to Italy to interview uh, decision makers about what they did in the wake of some legendary disease outbreaks that had taking place there. And sorry, was this in preparation for COVID as things no, were picking we up? No, we didn't know anything about COVID. Yeah, because February, so, so this was, yeah, February yeah, yeah. people well, weren't really taking it seriously. Yeah, we didn't, we, we knew, but but yeah, so so this we was- We knew, but didn't was, acknowledge. No, it, this was scheduled for February, right? This was before COVID. I mean, and, and this was a, sort of a small outbreak and um, 10 people died or like, it was really sort of small scale, but that, that was the, the infectious disease outbreaks at that time uh, before COVID. That was the type of, and then of course it got canceled, right? Because, you know, then COVID hit Italy and it hit Italy really hard in, in February uh, and, 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 and start March. So, so whole, the whole project was sort of put down, um, but then we still had sort of a, the, the funding kind of thing. And then we, we merged it into COVID-19. And the problem with COVID-19 is if you want to do an after action review is that it has to be after the action, right? It has to be, after COVID-19, but then both the WHO and the ECDC, they've developed these sort of tool called uh, inaction reviews or intra-action reviews, because, you know, uh, in, in recognition that the, that the prolonged nature of, of, of the COVID-19, that, that we need to have some experience and some lessons learned, you know, uh, as, as we go along. And then we've written, a, together with, with, with some others, a protocol on, on evidence-based decision-making uh, uh, in times of, of, of health emergencies, or in this case, in this case, COVID-19, 
um, where we use sort of a case-based approach. And this, this means that we, 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 we want to look, we, so it's a protocol, it hasn't been implemented yet. It's, it's not something we've done actually in, in country yet because um, I mean that there has to be sort of in-country buy-in to it. So, and they, they need to sort of spend money and time doing it. And, and this is not something they have that much of at the moment with COVID-19. But, but that's the idea. The, the idea is to see if we can learn some lessons from some specific decisions that were made. For instance, school closure or, you know, why was that decision made? Why was it different across countries uh, when, when you, you, you had the sort of same information, right? And, and all these sort of issues. And the, the, the idea is that it shouldn't only be used uh, for school closures because you can say, well, maybe school closures are a thing of the past now around with the vaccine rollout, but it should be sort of indicative of wider decision-making policies and how you you can go about making decisions in, in with much uncertainty, with a limited time frame, with, with high stakes. Uh, how can you then sort of optimize the, the evidence that you, you, you feed into the process and, and how can you optimize, what can you say, the, the structure of the decision uh, making process, meaning sort of it, it, one thing is the evidence. Another thing is how do you process that evidence? Who do you invite? Uh, what's the procedure? What's the uh, epidemic law? Uh, what are the ad hoc uh, working groups? Uh, what are, you know, there are all these, these uh, issues. And, 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 and our idea is, is to, to implement that, hopefully like uh, uh, end 2021, start 2022 in, in actual countries. But okay. we haven't done that yet. But that's an action. That's an after-action review. That's something you know, uh, international organizations do all the time. Uh, often consultancies do these after-action reviews, uh, and then they they publish them. And then sometimes they're used, sometimes they're just shelved. But that's the that's the way it is. Um, but yeah. And so, for example, if the decision <clears throat> evidence decision uh, evidence-based decision making. Because yeah. I guess from a, as a healthcare professional, um, I, you know, we think about decision making in terms of um, clinical decisions and therapeutics and, you know, whether you give uh, the patient whatever treatment and all those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. I guess a this is this is totally off script, I guess. One thing that's always, well, I say always, I keep saying always, one thing that has, I, I've wondered is if each country with uh, with their COVID-19 vaccine program, if they've also gone for the chrono chronological, um, you know, sort of starting with the older population and then working down older population and then risk mm. risk groups or risk uh, high risk groups, and they're working their way down and having the children and uh, babies and all this stuff being vaccinated last. Whereas in my humble opinion, um, I could be completely wrong. You can tell me wrong. But in my humble opinion, um, kids interact. It must be very hard. I mean, I'm not sure now, but it would be very hard to keep, to have the children socially distanced, right? Because they play with each other. And sometimes they mm. could be passing the virus between themselves, not necessarily getting infected. Well, I mm -hmm. suppose they could even get infected, but maybe their symptoms. And I don't know, would just the structure and order of the vaccine programs, what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so so this is an area where I'm, I'm not an expert. I mean, the order clearly. of vaccines would be uh, like a health uh, specialist, I, I think. Yes. Yeah, so so I, I do know that, that children are, of course, as you say, asymptomatic often, but they are also very, unlikely to sort of actually uh, 
be very contagious, like like they don't sort of transmit the the pathogen a lot to to other children or, or grown-ups, right? So so they're actually sort of not the. I, I think often when you have these like uh, outbreaks in schools, it's either it's sort of the old the elderly children, if you can say that, like like uh, uh, eleven plus <laughs> elderly children, yeah, um, eleven plus, or it's often sort of uh, teachers that actually bring the the the, the virus into the, to the schools. So I don't think that, that we are planning to vaccinate children. I know in the U.S. that, that the, the, the Pfizer is, has just sort of, I, I, I don't know the, the age. Oh, limit, under but, 16. But, uh, is it vaccine. under 16? Yeah, 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 under 16. Yeah. But I don't think we need to vaccinate the, 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 the children unless they have, I, I don't know. I, again, now I'm, I'm speaking uh, outside my, my comfort zone, but uh, unless they might have some like... Uh, disease or something that makes them very susceptible to, to COVID-19. Uh, but I think that the sort of argument is, and I think that's true that, you know, it's so correlated with age, COVID-19, right? I mean, uh, especially like in the, in the upper brackets, 80, 70, that it would make sense, even though you can say, well, they're not transmitting the disease a lot because they're not out uh, dancing on the, in the discotheques and stuff like that, not most of them anyway. So it makes sense to, to vaccinate them uh, the first. But then, of course, the question comes as you go down, you know, the age brackets. When do you start including the young people, not children, but the young people, because they're now like the carrier of the disease now. Uh, and I know in a lot of countries they've started to vaccinate young people now, before they vaccinate forty-year-old people, for instance, uh, because they 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 are. So I don't know what's uh, right or wrong. But it, what is interesting from from a social science perspective is. You know how different uh, how different countries uh, like first of all this it's interesting to to see the shift in in um, in uh, who's taking charge of the decision making process because in a lot of countries uh, before the vaccination started politicians were very hands on right they were very uh, sort of a uh, uh, sort of a aggressive and and a lot of times that these huge lockdowns were actually made, not because the, the health authorities said that that was the right policies, they were made like, despite the, the recommendations of the health uh, authorities in a lot of countries that had much more this proportionality principle. Uh, but now when, when it's time to vac vaccinate, all the power has gone in a lot of European countries back to the, to the health authorities. So if they say a vaccine, vaccine as in Denmark, they said AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are unsafe because of the side effects, the government, they just sort of threw them out of the vaccine program. So they've done that in Norway and, and, and Denmark. And, and again, so I'm not saying what is right or wrong, but it, it's just interesting. It, it'll be something that's interesting to study. Like why, why do you see this shift from, you know, this very powerful politicians that say, well, we don't care what the health authorities say. They didn't say that explicitly, but that was the sort of, yeah. and, and now that they sort of just, they just blindly follow what they say when it's time to roll out the vaccine. And then that, that's, that's, that's interesting. I would be um, interested to know that as well, because. Yeah, me too. It, yeah. <laughs> Research projects number seven. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, uh, <laughs> but it is, it is a weird. So, so yeah. So it's also more like why do some countries you know, choose to abandon AstraZeneca vaccine mm -hmm. that I know the UK is, is using a lot, right? Because yeah. of very, very rare side effects uh, of, 
do you think i think well humble opinion i think it might be a bit more politically um motivated the i don't know, well, it, I don't know. yeah but it is the health of forces in, in these countries that that make ah, these... that is true that yeah, is true. yeah so so that's so that's that's the that's the weird part right uh, yeah um, but 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 you know i that there are i mean if we have time i can sort of come up with the arguments that they they decide in favor but that doesn't discard the fact that that there are differences in yes. how you implement the vaccines and and what vaccines you use and what's the strategy and, and so on. That's that's interesting. Often you can use the, the Nordic countries as this sort of experiment because we're so similar in a lot of ways. Uh, but yet when it, often when it comes to health emergencies, we behave rather differently. <laughs> like even though sort of we, we, we culturally we are very much the same, you know, mature democracies, yeah. welfare state, uh, social democrats sort of often and, and so on, but 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 we we often handle these health emergencies very differently, which is which why is, is that? Why is that? So, so in Sweden, I mean, the, the, there are a lot of explanations. In Sweden, the health authorities are much more uh, independent. So under Den in Denmark and, and Norway, it's under ministerial control. It's sort of part of the ministry, and and in Sweden, they have this like um, quasi autonomous health agencies that 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 actually that that means that their advice also in the beginning of the pandemic not just now were were really sort of they, they were in control of the of the whole uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions meaning the lockdown and so on so in sweden it was much more proportional than in denmark and, and norway uh, and i think that's one of the one of the reasons is this history of, of relying on experts uh, and 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 there are a lot of good reasons to to have this quasi autonomous um, uh, um, sort of setup uh, where you re where you rely on experts to lead you through the health emergency. But of course, there are also some caveats or problems with it because if, as we see now, the strategy might be wrong or it might not be optimal, there's no sort of democratic recourse. You you can't sort of uh, oust the the, the the health expert at the next election, but but you know, so so there are all these sort of problems and and, and benefits of of having that. That's why we don't have a sort of a, a state of of experts that just make decisions, right? It's because we we want to have politicians with all their flaws and mistakes, because then we you know we can re-elect them and we can oust them from office and so on. That's interesting. So if just to make sure I've understood, if the person that's making the decision is not linked politically to any party, then no, that if the health expert gets it wrong, the repercussions won't necessarily, well, in theory, can't necessarily be all because that government allowed it so, to yeah, some it's, extent. It's called, yeah, there's some like political theory called lightning rods, right, that, mm -hmm. that, that politicians can use if they want to make sort of decisions that might blow up. They can always put sort of a civil servant in front or sort of an expert uh, as a lightning rod for criticism and so on. Oh, that's uh, so interesting. Yeah, but but that is not what ha what happened here because um, because it was more that the setup. I think the setup is that they would like health experts to to really sort of guide the decisions in times of crisis. Uh, and I think there are many sort of you know the, the other side of the coin is that your know, health experts are more isolated from political pressure. So they can do what they feel is best and all that. And, and I fully recognize that aspect as well. 
but you also have the the other aspect that that you know it's difficult for, for people to sort of it's also pick, difficult to get uh, an insight into how decisions are reached when they're sort of monopolized in one health agency uh, because you have this freedom of information act and you can sort of uh, uh, investigative journalists can sort of uh, try to find out like who made the decisions by sort of uh, uh, applying for insights into emails back and forth between between uh, governments and health agencies and so on but you can't apply for uh, for so access to emails internally in an organization of course right because it's an internal matter so so that's also sort of hinders the ability from from investigative journalists or academics to sort of try to track who took the decision and why was that taken and why was not another decision taken so so there are some some problems and but also some benefits um, so, yeah. I, you mentioned um, when we were talking about why you were so popular in the last grant. Why do people assume, as a social, <laughs> as a social scientist, you can talk to politicians? Because I'm a political scientist. Oh. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you have yeah. you have links with po um, politicians as well, or is no, it just? No, it's because they think I. Uh, they, ha I mean. They, I don't know, if, I, I can't speak for all, but they think, okay, political sciences, they know something about politicians uh, yeah. and they must be good at communicating to politicians because they, yeah, but it's like, um, yeah. So but, then but, thinking that that will have more um, impact because you would be able to speak yeah, the language I, of politicians. Exactly. But I did not, not think our collaboration through. I just was like, oh my gosh, you seem really cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I like your work, okay. it's interesting. No, but yeah, but is it, yeah. And, and that's not really what we learn in, in political science is not like how to, there, there are like topics as communication or political communication. So it's not that it's totally far-fetched, but, but I'm not sort of an expert in communicating. You don't have a with politician poli in your back pocket. <laughs> no, I, I, then I would be a lobbyist and earn much more, no, right? No, no. <laughs> oh, why are we in academia? Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I've gone completely off script. I mean, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. Um, Okay. Uh, because you'd mentioned ah that yeah you said when we were just uh, talking you were talking about the vaccine and if um, you could go into some insight from a social science perspective for each one was that did I get that right or the choice of the vaccine yeah no but anyway, I, I'm, I was also going out off, off, off script so it was just like it would be interesting to see why similar countries faced with similar problems react differently. Uh, it could be vaccine, it could be lockdown policies, and so on. So, because that could tell us something about how decision making works and what works and what doesn't work. Right. You know, I would uh, be I would be interested to um, also around that where countries have had to rely on quote unquote donations and not being able to have in. Uh, sorry, not the. So we had somebody from People's Vaccine, and we were talking about the okay. inability of different countries for in-country manufacturing of vaccines and because of the patent being held with different people and not being released and you know all those sort of things that affect um, aside from country resources and, and, and um, policies and infrastructure and I would be quite interested to understand how those who had to rely on um, you know, one one or two of the manufacturers of, of whichever vaccine brand allowing access to other parts of the country, how that impacted their decision, where it, you know, 
they were not able to say, oh, well, we have X number of doses that we can guarantee we can make. But mm. instead, we're, they're having to rely on another country to donate something. And then they have sure. to make their decision based on that, knowing that the vaccine, the number of doses that they're receiving is, you know, 10% of the population that needs it. That would be quite yeah. um, interesting, yeah, but true. sad. Yeah, that's true. I mean, first of all, I think we have to recognize the, the immense undertaking that pharmaceutical in, uh, companies have, have actually produced the vaccine. I think they already produced the vaccine like a, a week after the first fatality in the US, right? I mean, they had the, yeah, yeah, they had, they had the sort of blueprint of the vaccine. Of course, they haven't tested it through all these trials. So, so that, that, that's really good. And secondly, that they have the capacity to actually scale up the production as they have, right? Where, where it's, it's not like, I mean, even if, if you don't, even if you don't release the patent and all that, I mean, it, there's a lot of vaccines being, <laughs> being distributed yeah. right now. Of course, the US and Europe, they, they have like bought a, like a lot of vaccines more than they, because they have to sort of make sure to, so, so there are not at this point, a lot of vaccines to, to low income, uh, low income countries or low, yeah, low middle income countries even, right, in, in India. But the problem with having national sort of vaccine production facilities is of course that they're so uh, ineffective or ineconomic in, in throughout most, throughout decades, right? Right, I mean, that's the, the problem with disasters is, is if it's so easy to say, well, we need to have preparedness plans, resilience, we need to have this and this, but it's so costly to have. In, in all these years where nothing happened, you have a, a lot of people saying, why are there no money for better schools? Why are there no money for better uh, elderly care? Why are there no money for you know everything? And then you have to defend your decision and say, well, it could be that in 20 years time, there will be <laughs> a new pandemic or a new flood or a new tsunami or something like that. And when that, and then you have to defend your decision to have these sort of expensive vaccine, uh, ineffective vaccine factories in your country, like ready to produce whatever vaccine you need. And, and uh, when, if that time comes, you'll not, no longer be in office, most probably. So you won't even get sort of the reward of, of having been like farsighted and, 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 and done that. So, so there's a sort of, again, sort of a politician's dilemma that a lot of the things that we want to have are so ineffective in normal years, right? So let's not forget that this is like a hundred years since the, the last like really great uh, pandemic, right? So I, they might come up more often now. I realize that, but 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 still, it it will be really really ineffective to have these national vaccines. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying why it is that from a political perspective, it, it's really hard to justify, right? And you could also say, I mean, it. I know isn't it called the uh, Covax or something like this? This sort of a vaccine uh, program and, and I know that it doesn't sort of it doesn't really uh, work where really well right now because there are not enough vaccines but I think like in 2022 uh, that, that that it will start to pick up uh, but you can say like okay so the world is uh, it, because even if you if you are low middle uh, low income countries it's also really expensive to have this vaccine or, or and how would you get the expertise? You plan to sort of pay a salary, so you, you would have like uh, Pfizer employees moving to, to to I don't know like an African country, and and so there are a lot of problems with it. So I think like the Biden 
proposal of, of that is maybe more uh, political than, than real sort of, <laughs> it won't solve the, the short-term problem um, of, of not enough vaccines. And I think we have to recognize that we do have a lot of vaccines. I mean, that there is a, of course, it's every life lost is, is a tragedy and so on, but, but you know, they are producing a lot of vaccines. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's just getting them to, to the right people. So I don't think national, but even in Denmark, they're, they're talking about opening a national sort of vaccine production facility in the future. So that might be, but, but I mean, they just closed, they closed one like 10 years ago, right? So, so yeah, they sold it, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, they'll, they'll also their money back. Can we have it back, please? Yeah, yeah. But it's a general, general problem is that these sort of disaster mitigation measures or preventive measures are expensive to have and they're so difficult to justify mm. in, in normal years, of which there's luckily most, <laughs> most years are sort of normal from a disaster perspective, right? So. Yeah. yeah, I guess with um, COVID, maybe where it's shocked everyone is just the su- the quickness and the suddenness of of it and the global impact that it sort of shut everything and everyone down. Sure. So but, I th- yeah, mm-hmm. but but we also we are much more vulnerable. We 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 sort of uh, we're used to it's Ulrich Beck's risk society kind of thing. We 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 want the state to protect us absolutely right we don't accept uh, any risk or and i i mean i don't either but but if you compare with the, the spanish flu i think it killed 3 to 5% of the population right and this this covid-19 pandemic might kill one or two uh, what do you call it promil or like it's it's really every i mean again i don't want yeah. to be sensitive no, no, insensitive no. but but in terms of order, it's it's not it, you can't see it. It's it's a bleep on the global. You, I mean, we're we're still being there are still more and more people in the world today, right? Mm-hmm. So so there, so it's it's um, yeah. But we're just we don't want to accept. We a lot of the sort of risk plans uh, in, in 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 European countries, they had they stated like that we we won't close down unless you know something happened that is much more drastic than what we saw now, but we closed down anyway, right? Yeah. But in the vaccine plans, like they had sort of much higher benchmarks for when we were going to close down. Mm. So I think it's also that we are more vulnerable or we don't want to accept risk, right? Even the slightest risk. And then of course you can say we are less vulnerable to locking down in the West because we have, we can, we can, we can, uh, yeah, we can do this online. Uh, a lot of work can be done online or at home now. Yep. Imagine if this was 20 years ago, right? So, right. So it would be, would it be I don't getting... think we would lock down uh, 20 years ago. No, but maybe my emails um, would be less. That would have been nice. Mm. I think <laughs> that the That's pandemic true. for me has increased my email influx. Sorry, I'm just like, that gives me anxiety. But anyway, Oliver, this has been lovely. Um, it's been nice Great. having you on the podcast and having what has been more of a conversation and um, just a nice free flowing discussion. I've really enjoyed myself. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. Yes. Um, I can do it another time if you want yes, to. Yes, you no, oh, definitely. And I love the fact, one of the things I've enjoyed about talking to you is um, we've had a reference for Friends, Marvel, 
um, dating app, which was hilarious. <laughs> and um, yeah. also, so it's been really good to learn a little bit more about the social, not a, little, a lot more about social science research. Um, there, yeah, there are also social scientists that are serious. But, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, it's okay. Like, I don't yeah. necessarily want to work with those ones. <laughs> no. And also you got all the, you know, everybody wanted to talk to you. So um, yep. that's that's it. Clearly there's something that's working. Um, <laughs> so um, before you go, I wanted to ask you sure. if you had any concluding comments. So any key take-home messages that you'd want our listeners to be left with? Yeah, so, yeah. You can say, I mean, it's clearly that we need to be pre better prepared. I think most people say that, but but my take is we need, need to be pre better prepared, not necessarily for the next pandemic, but for, for, for the next crisis, which is probably going to be very unlike this one, right? And the reason to, uh, the, the one of the ways we can be more prepared is through having these transdisciplinary or transparademic uh, um, working groups or setups where, where you have a broader roster of experts that can be sort of on a short notice that can be activated. I think that's uh, important uh, uh, to have. And then of course, you know, uh, the, the fable of, of crying wolf. Do you, do you know that in, in English? Yes, yeah. the, that the boy need, who cried wolf. Yeah, the boy who cried wolf. I mean, we need to allow these experts to cry wolf, these broader roster of experts to cry wolf a lot of times and we still need to come, right? So even though, I mean, we've cried wolf a lot of times, when, I mean, because it's so expensive when it really happens, right? So so it's better to have these 10 false alarms or something. Whereas, you know, in 2009, it was sort of a false alarm where the WHO also sort of issued this pandemic warning for the swine flu, but it never really materialized into a sort of major disaster. But we need to accept that these false, false or, or warnings that, that are false will happen, and but we need to, to still be attentive to them. So a broader roster of experts and, and scholars or, or practitioners as well, and, and, and then this sort of uh, politicians need to sort of change and citizens need to change the attitude and, and be ready to, to sort of uh, come when you cry wolf, even if it's the 11th time or 12th time. And I know it can be tiresome, but, but that's, that's what we need to do. That's really interesting because, sorry, I was just saying, because swine flu 20, uh, 2009, I was um, doing my PhD and I was actually working in the pharmacy during swine flu. Of course, no mask, no nothing. Is that, yeah, yeah it's like, hello, take your meds. Hello, um, yeah. But I, sorry, I just it just dawned on me when you said that the WHO were quick then to say this is a pandemic, this is, you know, or this is something. Mm -hmm. Could that be why they were a bit slower this time <laughs> to say, to actually call it? I'm so sorry, I usually end yeah, yeah. with the concluding yeah, comments yeah, and your yeah, your yeah. last words will be so powerful and thing, but yeah. I just had to ask. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's pure speculation, right? And it's some, probably oh. something that's difficult to find out. Yeah. But uh, it, I mean, it's difficult to not think about like the history, right? I mean, if, yeah. if you've really been criticized for being too fast, next time- Be too slow. Be, it, you might be, but there were like all sorts of issues, right? Also with China and, and all that in the beginning. But imagine if we had like just two weeks, had a two weeks head start that, that could have changed the course of the pandemic, right? So so we need to sort of really be alert. Wow. In the future and not be afraid to to have these false alarms and, and not be sort of, uh, 
blame for these false alarms because they, they will happen because the, the world is so complex that you'd never know when something is going to blow up and it's so expensive when it does, right? So mm. as we can see now, <laughs> right? Um, wow. Yeah. You've been listening to the Monday Science Podcast, a weekly show bringing you the latest research and news in science, technology, medicine and health we hope you've gotten some useful and thought-provoking info from the show and we hope you had fun along the way we know we did we'll be back soon but in the meantime hook up with us on our website at www.mondayscientepodcast.com shoot us an email at info at mondayscientepodcast.com Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Monday Science and access episode summaries at mondayscience.medium.com. See you next week on the Monday Science Podcast.